All right. So we have talked about how dependent, how spiritual disciplines are for us to grow dependence on the Lord, not to grow our independence from Him. Uh, last night we talked about how we depend on Him for our rest. We depend on Him for all of our confession. Um, next we're doing. Bible reading and prayer. I have a tough time never not picking these ones because they're so foundational that they really should be addressed. Um, but it's difficult because this is where I have had personal struggles. I love the Word of God. It is where I get life. Um, I struggle with personal discipline to be in it as much as I think I should. And I beat myself up about that a lot. And so part of writing and, and speaking about this part shares a bit of that struggle. And um, God is so good. I have searched the Bible looking for the answer to the question as I wrestle through this. And in my mind, it's a very practical question because I, I want to know what the goal is. How much time exactly should I be spending in the Word of God every day? That, that's what I want to know. Um, how much of my Bible should I read? Should I read a section a day? Should I go through and meditate on one verse a day? Do I have to go through a chapter a day? Should I be reading through the, the Bible in a year? Um, I, I put rankings on all of these in my mind. Like, I'm like graduating to the next level, or I graduate to this level, and, and this is a little bit more holy to do it this way than to do it this way. And as I go through various seasons in my life, I feel like if I'm reading less, then it's kind of a less holy time of my life. And if I'm reading more, then it's like, and so I, I kind of rank them and, and grade myself that way. And I think that's why I search the scriptures for this very practical, practical question. What does this look like? So if we're using numbers and measurements to say what's acceptable, then what number and measurements is acceptable as Christians? So then as we get even times of day, should I wake up before my kids are awake? Or should I, um, before the rest of the household, should I wake up before I go to work? and do something and spend time in the Word. What if I sleep in? Does that mean I'm a really bad Christian that day? Or can I make it up like around like lunchtime and squeeze it in there? And then, like, if I'm, am I a better Christian if I spend three hours a day in the Word? Really studying, really going deep, but I'm totally neglecting my children at the same time. Like, again, where does the ranking fit in there? The question of what is enough and what isn't enough has plugged me. And I, I continue to search the scriptures. And as I said last night, it's always enough, always. There is there's something to, um, to liturgy. And every church, no matter what church you belong to, has a liturgy to it. It's just kind of the order of surface. Service Like you, you sing a song and then you do this and then you have the, the sermon. Um, some churches are quote unquote more liturgical than others. 
And I've found that um, those liturgies are different than law. It's kind of these habits. I, I'll tell a little story about when um, years ago I had had a miscarriage. And I have found that liturgy is somewhat like grieving because I, of course, it happened at a busy time of the farm. I think it was um, spring planting. And I was on my own with the kids. I was grieving. My husband was out in the field and he was grieving. And a friend of mine um, who lived in Grand Forks, North Dakota, about four hours away from me, she just decided to pick up her husband and her, her two children and just come out and be with me. And she just came. And um, so I was about three or four days into the miscarriage at this point. And um, she came and she's like, Gretchen, you're, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're we're going to take your, you and the kids out to eat. We're going to get you some food. Um, you're going to take a shower. I don't think that you've bathed in a little while. Like I, I wasn't eating. I wasn't doing any. I was just in grief. And she just came and she told me what to do. And I just did it. And it was very helpful. And I remember sitting in, in Applebee's where she took my kids and, I mean, I, I bit into a big hamburger and I realized that I hadn't eaten in like three days. And, and so then I ate a ton of stuff and she and her husband just took care of my kids. And then her husband went riding on the tractor with my husband and they just got to spend some time together. And she came, she came over and told me what to do because I had no idea how to go, get through this. And so I think that's one of the differences when we view law and God, Jesus has fulfilled the law through the resurrection. That does not mean that as the church, we don't have a liturgy to help us know what to do when we have no idea what to do. That is the church at work helping us with that. Can liturgies be, be turned into laws? Absolutely, like you have to do it this way um, and, and become really legalistic, but that is not their purpose. And I think about even like a church service, um, the pastoral, the pastors and the pastoral team, they come up with something to serve you. This is what you're gonna do next and this is what you're gonna do next because you've had a week and this is how you're gonna be served. Martin Luther famously said, I did nothing, the word did everything. I have found that Satan will call me like a legalist if I'm like regularly in my Bible and like being on top of things. Like you, you're just, you think it's just all you and you're holding it all together. But if I'm failing at it, he's gonna call me a failure. And I finally realized that Satan will never be satisfied because the fact is, is he doesn't get to name me and the only one who gets to name me is satisfied on account of Christ. I don't think there's any other discipline that makes us feel more ranked than Bible reading. Most questions arise as a response to the verse like Romans 10, 17, a very important verse. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Therefore, if you want more faith, you should get in the word more. Like that's like where the logic goes, right? With, that equa with, with an equation that simple, 
We should just hold nothing back and study the Bible night and day and do nothing else. What's stopping us from 30 minutes a day? Why not four hours? We think this way, we still believe that our works will kind of give us an edge to our faith. It'll kind of give us a one up, make us a super Christian. But the faith that God wants to grow in us is not faith in our abilities, but faith in Christ and his abilities. So before we talk about reading the word of God, let's examine some kind of emotional baggage that we associate with this. And these are just rhetorical questions to think about. Do you feel guilty when you miss a day of Bible reading? Do you feel shame for how much you dread opening up the Bible because you don't understand it? Do you feel shame about that? Do you, do you have to bribe yourself to read the Bible? Like, okay, I'm going to read this many chapters, then I'm, I'm going to give myself this. When you don't understand what the Bible is saying, does that shake your faith? Are you intimidated by reading the Bible on its own without a devotional, like you're, you're somehow not smart enough to understand it? Do you feel guilty if you don't get much out of the Bible reading time? You're like plunging through numbers and you're getting nothing from it. Numbers are Leviticus and you don't understand. And it was hard, but I got it done. But this, I don't get it, God. I don't know what you're doing. Have you ever listed Bible reading as a New Year's resolution until you make it to a certain part of the Bible where you constantly just drop off? Haven't we all? Does it count? Was it enough? What if I don't understand? What am I getting out of it anyway? These are the, the things, um, the heart of the issue. Like Bible reading plans are just fine. I'm all for them. Um, but the heart of the issue is the, the guilt that we associate with. I wanted to figure out why I'm always failing at this. And I realized it's because I saw it as my work and that not as Christ's work in me. We bring a lot of baggage into our Bible reading and that baggage can have theological implications as we approach God's word. How we interpret the Bible matters. I've learned that Bible reading is both individual and it's communal. It's not one or the other. Reading within a community, hearing the word preached matters. It, the, the verse doesn't say faith comes from reading the word. It says from hearing the word. It wasn't a very literate people this was going to. And in order to hear something, you have to have someone else speak it to you. Like there's a communal aspect to this. God gave us the Bible as a gift. It's not a noose around our necks. But however, because we form to it, it doesn't form to us. We often wrestle through the challenges as it challenges and it shapes us. It's gonna make us uncomfortable at times. But someone once told me that the Bible is the Holy Spirit's vocabulary. So when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, those are the words he uses. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's vocabulary. So if you wanna know his language, knowing the Bible is learning to to hear that. The catch-22 of Bible reading, if you learn to love re Bible reading by actually reading the Bible. And I think that's the catch-22 from time to time, or all the time when we struggle to read it. 
So I think the knee-jerk reaction and common advice is that you just have to dig your heels in. You just got to do it. Go, go Nike, just do it. I mean, not everything has to be fun all the time. You know, I think that's the most common advice. And, and it's to almost shame ourselves a little bit. Um, just, just keep going, muscle through. And honestly, that sometimes works. I have gone through seasons of that as well. But it's always followed by a humbling when I realize it wasn't my muscles that were going on. Like if your story is, I just had to push myself, do the hard things, and it really paid off. I'm in the word now, and God did a great thing. Of course, I believe you on that. That wasn't wrong. But I do want to say that we have to remember our goal in spiritual disciplines is more dependence on him. And that is freeing. So as you may have your own way of motivating yourself, or if you struggle in this area, I want to add a suggestion on what to do with your heart when you struggle to get in the Word. When I was a young, really young mom, I asked an older woman I respected how she was so faithful in her Bible reading. And she said, well, you just have to want it badly enough. And then I thought, um, I don't want it badly enough. That was kind of a realization for me. It was a convicting one. And, and I immediately felt shame of how, how do I get myself to want it more? Because I obviously don't. Maybe I just don't understand how important it is. Or maybe I just don't do all of that. But it realized, I, I realized at one point, this light bulb moment, God is in charge of our hearts He's the one who shapes our hearts. He's the one who molds our hearts. He's the one who melts our hearts. You see all throughout scripture, him changing the heart of people. And so I finally got to a place where I'm like, God, can you help me want it? Because I don't want it. And I had to confess that to him. I don't want it. Can you help me want it? I believe, help my unbelief. And I put through that in his court. You have to help me want this. It was a huge eureka, eureka moment for me. I know a God who specializes in changing hearts. I, my prayer was actually a little bit more dumb than that. I said, Lord, help me read your word as much as I want to drink coffee. Help me crave it that much. I figured I never looked at my clock and said, oh, it's 9 a.m. already. I haven't had my coffee yet. Oh, well, I guess that's just missed for the day. I started praying over all my issues, like all the minuscule ones. God, I'm having trouble getting up in the morning. Could you help me with that? God, would you pester me? God, convict my heart, renew my heart, give me a passion that I can't seem to muster. This was revolutionary for me to say, God, you have to do this. I cannot. Do you know that these kinds of prayers are not only allowed, they're encouraged? It's what he wants you to pray. God, I've learned that when I pray, God, make me uncomfortable until I have your word. He has zero problem making me uncomfortable until that happens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks about the importance of individual time with God, and he says that seeking just an individual faith experience is just as dangerous as speaking out, as just seeking out a church 
like just hearing sermons experience. He said both of them have their dangers. He said one who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into a void of words and feelings and one who only seeks out solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation and despair. When I, um, when I went to Bible school, my first year was at Moody Bible Institute and one of my professors there had a phrase for those who kept taking in the word but they weren't living in community and, and um, reaching out, sharing the word with those around them. Um, in, their, in a church setting, he called it spiritual constipation. You, you just become full of your own thoughts and you are not sharing it around. Um, as noted in, in the discussion on rest, when we make righteousness about our works, we immediately show favoritism over how to do it. And, and as being the best way. But the Bible talks about walking by the Spirit, not walking by just a set of laws. We are walking by the Spirit. And Galatians 5, 18, 18 talks about that. I've always been struck by the fact that Corrie Ten Boom's family, she was, she was um, in World War II in, in Europe. I'm trying to think, was it Holland? She had Jews during the Holocaust and her family would read the Bible every morning and just invite the whole neighborhood over. Anyone could come over and hear as, as the grandfather would, would read to everybody. And um, people would just stay and listen. And when Corey and her sister were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp and they were able to miraculously smuggle in a Bible, they simply read it and talked about it. It was something they did together. I, I think that there is there's a safety in reading the Bible together or sharing it within a church community because you never want to like come to scriptures and say, oh, I discovered something that no one in all of church history has ever thought about before. Like that's a red flag. Um, because we're part of a body and, and there, there's a history to these things. With Corey Ten Boom, the, the words are, are worn and familiar. They were able to meditate on scripture when the book was not open, when it was not available to them. When routine was not possible for them, God remained in them and remained with them. The Holy Spirit did not come and go as the life turned upside down and was in a disciplined state or in a state of chaos. Christ remained every time. It wasn't their discipline that was holding them up. It was God's faithfulness to them. It's hard for me to write that I'm not very disciplined or to say that I, I'm an introvert. I am a perfectionist sometimes. My, my personality loves alone anything. And, and I love reading my Bible alone and praying alone. And, and my day is full of many kids and many interruptions and my thoughts start to stutter in my head where I feel like I can't get a complete thought. And I've learned to receive from a place of passive rest, to receive that gift from others. It's important also, so it's important to read individually and communally. Those are both good. 
But also when we read, it's important that we know what we're looking for. Because a lot of times it's easy to just say, okay, I'm gonna read the Bible and then I'm just going to do what it says. I mean, that's, that's what the circumcision party was struggling with a little bit. They're like, okay, well, it says here to circumcise and so let's just do it, it's not that hard. And, and, and so it's, it's easy to look at things in the past and say, okay, what are we supposed to do? You can open up passages of the Old Testament where God commands something and we're like, okay, are we supposed to kill this whole village over here? Like what, you know, there's just, what are we looking for? How are we interpreting this? In Luke 24, verses 13 through 27, there's a passage where Jesus goes, um, it's after the resurrection, and there's two men that are trying to figure out what happens. And Jesus comes and explains that all of scriptures, now remember the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so he was mostly referring them to the Old Testament, though this is all of scriptures. All of scriptures are about me, is what he says on the road to Emmaus. All of scriptures are about Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus doesn't just show up in the book of Matthew. Jesus is at creation. He is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity. You will see Jesus as, it's a fascinating thing when Chadbird comes for the men, he's gonna get into this. He's the one who taught me about the idea that there's an angel of the Lord, when it says that in the Bible, that actually is angel of Yahweh, not angel of like messenger. Um, there's angel of, uh, he would know the Hebrew words for it. The angel of like lowercase Lord, and then there's angel of Yahweh, Lord. There's a discrepancy. And whenever it says angel of Yahweh, what happens there is that angel claims to be God and everyone there refers to him as God and he gets worshiped. So whenever the angel of the Lord with Yahweh, instead of the lowercase, shows up in the Old Testament, Chad would say that is a pre-incarnate Christ showing up consistently. The Bible has Christ everywhere as our access point to God. We can do Bible reading, but to put it outside of community outside of understanding the doctrine of good discipleship and preaching, we can easily turn Bible study into kind of this conviction marathon of all log, no gospel, where we just we say, okay, these are all the things I need to do, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do. And we get so weary from it. When really what Bible reading is, is this is what God has commanded and this is what God has fulfilled. This is what God has commanded and this is what God has fulfilled. And if you look in all of the epistles, then it's, it kind of goes through a pattern in almost all of Paul's epistles of this is what God has done. This is what he has rescued you from. Therefore, know who you are. Know what you were redeemed from. Live out from that. I think the, the conviction marathon is something that I have struggled with um, to understand both law and gospel as both being from God, but knowing that my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more.
and to keep that on repetition. One thing my grandpa taught me is that whenever you're looking at the scripture and you see, um, you see something that seems really convicting or really difficult or really hard, hard teaching, he said, keep zooming out until you see Christ. Just keep zooming out until you see him. And that has been very helpful to me to know that he is with me. That this idea where you can take a verse out of context and just apply it however you want it, um, there's, a, there's a modern term for it called, called biblicism, um, which is very much along the, the lines of um, getting all of your intake of just Jesus and me. I'll tell you a quick story of a, a woman who I met an, on an airplane once many years ago. This was before smartphones and I was flying home from college. And th this woman was reading a book next to me. I was reading a book, I think, I was reading Desiring God by John Piper at the time, back in college. And she looked at me and she's like, oh, what book are you reading? And I said, oh, it's a book about Desiring God. And she, she said, oh, I bet the Christians hate that, like all of the Desiring, I'm like, it's actually written back, okay, but. And so, um, we were talking about, about that for a little bit. It went down and then she looked over at me and she said, after we had gotten our drinks, um, she said, you know, my grandma used to take me to church when I was a little girl. And I would learn to memorize scripture back then. And some of the scripture I memorized as, as a child, I still remember, even though I don't go to church or anything now. And I'm like, that's wonderful. She's like, do you know, what verse is my favorite? And I said, no, what's your, what's your favorite verse? And she said, be still and know that I am God. And I said, that is a wonderful verse. And she's like, I think about this verse whenever I need to remember to be still and know that I am God. And I was like, so that's not what that verse means at all. And she's like, well, you know, we all kind of interpret it different ways. And I'm like, no, no one interprets it that way. Like that, that's not, that, like this passage isn't saying that you're God. And she, um, she was so like flustered and she's like, well, I mean, David technically wrote it and he believed he was God. And I'm like, no, David didn't believe he was God. No, that, that was about Christ. And that was, we need to be looking at Christ. We need to be reading in community. It's not just Jesus and you. We have a church and that's a gift and that's a comfort. On the other hand, it's not just listening to the sermon on Sunday and forgetting it the rest of the week. The message is given to the church assembled, but also for you personally. It's not either or, it's both and. And understanding God's law and his gospel, which fulfills the law is something that never changes. And you'll see it in the Old Testament and you'll see it in the New Testament. I'm gonna skip over a little bit to prayer. This was hands down the hardest chapter to write in my whole book. When people say, what was the hardest one? This was the last chapter that I wrote even though it shows up earlier in the book. It was so hard. Um, because there's so many ways to take this 
For instance, think about all of the methods that we have to pray. Okay, so you've got prayer lists. I don't know if any of you guys have kept a prayer list of people that you pray for. There's a method. Um, there's prayer journals. I like to write out my prayers because that way I don't like get stuck on my grocery list in my head or something like that. Um, some people have a prayer box of note cards. I used to keep missionaries in a prayer box, you know, the, their cards and pray for them. Then of course there's like the youth group popcorn prayer where everyone just awkwardly shouts out something randomly for that. Um, then there's prayers to songs like the table prayer um, that you sing. I don't know, um, we do that in, um, in our church sometimes before potlucks. Then of course there's the Lord's Prayer um, that Jesus taught us to pray. And then there's the whole psalm book, which is just a, basically a psalm book of prayers. And then of course there's the famous Acts, which um, is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Some people use that method and that is really wonderful. There was another season of praying the scriptures where I would just read through and, and pray the words out loud. And then of course there's pre-written prayer books where people have written, um, one person just sent me a, a prayer book of like all the early fathers' prayers that they had written down. And some people like to pray old prayers from the church. It's good to understand the Lord's Prayer and learn methods of prayer because I think as it, when you're a new believer, you don't know where to start. Like, I, I don't know how to do, how do you talk to God? Like the very idea is so out there that you can just talk. There are many methods to prayer, but what astonishes me the most is that the Holy Spirit interprets my prayers with groans too deep for words. Whether he's groaning or I'm groaning, I'm not sure, but he hears me. And there's not a correct way to groan. You know, you, you, can, you can groan to the Lord. When my husband and I were first married, we taught a second grade Sunday school class at our church together. And we were given a curriculum to teach. And each week the book laid out four different activities to do with the kids. Our class time usually allowed one or two of these activities to happen. And so I usually wanted to pick whatever activity was simple and calm, like something I didn't have a lot of prep for, and they would be like, like coloring a coloring page or something like that. And um, that didn't usually go well for this little blonde-headed kid named John, who was, John was full of questions. Like he, his mouth did not stop and really good questions. He wasn't trying to be like mean or disobedient. His brain was just constantly going and he definitely kept us on our toes. And we often had him in mind when we were planning which activity of which activity John could do. And one, I, one evening, my, my husband, um, Knut, um, we were we, he and I were planning our lesson and we read about an activity where, which would require us to make this 3D model of a temple to bring to class. It was like we had to cut it out and paste it and like put it all together for the Sunday school class. And all the little pieces were provided with it. And Knut was like, let's do this one. This will be awesome. And I'm just like, that is gonna take all night to set up because of course it's Saturday night. It's when you know, all Sunday school teachers just pull it together really fast. And I'm like, that's gonna take all night to put together this paper temple. 
And he's like, well, suit yourself, I'm going to do it. So he decided to do it himself. And you, like, you have to get the visual of my sweet husband. Like, he played college football. He's a big guy. He was a linebacker, and he's a farmer. He's got these big hands with these big fingers. And he's got this, like, little, trying to paste these, like, little pieces together in the evening so that John could see it because he knew that he would like it. And the next morning during Sunday school, we went through the lesson, and when we got to the point where we brought out the 3D model and the curriculum prompted us to ask the children a few questions, I mean, I think it took maybe five minutes for them to answer it. And I reread the page, and I'm like, this can't be. Knut spent three hours putting this together last night, and we got five minutes of questions. No, we're going to milk this a little bit more. Like, I, I wanted to, like, get get some good teaching in there. And so I was determined to make the most of his tedious offerings. So I gathered the kids close, and I told them I was going to show them every single little part of this 3D model. And we just totally went off script, and we pieced together what we knew from both my husband and I going to Bible school, and we started telling the kids the parts of the temple. We're like, okay, this, these are the outer courts, and this is the holy place, and this is the Holy of Holies, and this is the lamp, and we were trying to explain what everything did. And um, I said, right, there is, right here is the holy place. Only the priests can go in there. And then here is the holy of holy place. Only the high priest could go in there, and only on the Day of Atonement. And I said, my pastor told me when I was growing up, I don't know if it's true or not, that they would tie a rope around him, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, in case he died in there, they could pull him out. And, you know, the boys in the class, their eyes got huge. They're like, that's awesome. And we explained that the Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box covered in gold, and inside the box was the Ten Commandments and the manna the Lord had provided, and Aaron's staff that had sprouted. And it was his law and his nourishment and his new life coming out of a dead thing. And on top of this gold box in the Holy of Holies were, were two golden seraphim, heavenly beings, kind of angels, um, positioned in such a way to point to the glory or the presence of God. These wings on the seraphim served kind of like a throne-like image called the mercy seat. That was, that was the name of God's throne, was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where the presence of God would rest and the high priest would meet with God there on the day of atonement. So we, we explained to the captive audience that the book of Hebrews shows this temple, it was just an imprint, a shadow of God's dwelling place in heaven. The temple on earth was just a shadow of what was going on in heaven. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was simply something visual for us to see. And we told the boys, because we had mostly boys in our class, uh, because we could not see the real mercy seat where God is ruling forever. Yet in the Old Testament temple held that it had such holiness that priests could die going into it if they were not covered with a sacrifice. And I pointed to the door of the Holy of Holies and I said, you know, there was a thick curtain separating this here from the inner room, from the outer room. And I don't know why I said it. I didn't have anything to do with the curriculum or anything. But I said, you know, when Jesus gave his last breath on the cross, there was an earthquake, and the curtain that restricted access to the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. And John had been quiet this whole time. 
He was taking it all in, but here he interrupted. And he said quietly and full of wonder and fear, he said, but then anyone could get to God. And this pause hung in the room as all the kids let that idea sink in. Then that holy, glorious, dangerous majesty, anyone could have access to him. And it took a lot to make John silent, so that was a really big, big moment. The final sacrifice had been made. The privilege of being able to speak with God who sits on the mercy seat is available to us. Take a moment and ponder the name that God gave his throne for us to meet with him is the mercy seat where he hands out mercy. When you pray, you are praying to the God who walked with Adam and Eve You pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're talking to the God of Ruth, the God who gave Jonah over to a large fish, the God who parted the seas for Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. When you pray, you are praying to the God who was born as a human baby and yet remained fully God, who knows what it is to be human, knows what it is to live within our skin, He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to feel the most torturous pain. Jesus had emotions. He knows. When you pray to the the God who sits upon the mercy seat and he wants to talk to you. Martin Luther writes his friend, I saw that there's actually this book out there on how to pray. He said, I'll do my best to show you how I approach prayer. May our Lord God help us all to do better in this regard. Amen. First, sometimes I feel I'm being cold and apathetic about prayer. This is usually because of all the things that are distracting me and filling my mind. I know that this is a result of the flesh and the devil always waging war against me, trying to prevent me from praying. We all know it's a good thing to pray. Luther points out two reasons why we don't do it, our flesh and the devil. It's interesting to kind of meld the the Bible study and prayer together. Back in the monastic times, um, there were three stages that the monks would have in order to get enlightenment. And the first stage was to read the word. The second stage was to pray for understanding. And the third one was to just kind of wait for like this eureka moment of understanding, to meditate on it. No, sorry, I got that wrong. The first one was to read the word. The second was to meditate. The third one was to be enlightened. Martin Luther changed that a little bit. He said, it wasn't that way for me. He said, I learned I read the word of God. I meditate on it, like rubbing it, an herb for its flavor, trying to get the flavor out of it. He said, and then I battle. That third one, he said, it's a wrestling. And I find that that God, whether it's in our Bible study or in our prayer, he, he wrestles with us. I used to think that was a bad thing. Now I see that as a normal thing. God allows us to wrestle as he changes our heart. When I pray, I was talking with one of the younger women that I I mentor in my mentoring ministry, and we were talking about a very 
similar situation we had both been in. I had been in this situation many times for many years, um, relationship-wise, and she was just coming into this type of difficulty and basically of having family members who don't approve or, or like you in some way or, you know, to some extent, I think we all have that. And she was just like, well, what do you do? Like, like how, do you, how do you deal with that anger and frustration of like wanting to be pleasing and, and not doing it? And I said, well, I can tell you what I do, but I don't know if it's right. That's what writing this chapter was like. I could tell you what I do, but I don't know if it's right. Um, and she's like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, when I'm really upset about something and I know I need to take it to God, but I'm wrestling, I'm wrestling what I, with what I know to be true and what I'm feeling to be true. And it's all this big storm inside of me. I said, I go walk out to a field outside of our house and I go yell at God. I, I just go yell at him. And she's like, and you have not been smited down for that. And I said, no, I said, that's where God meets me. He meets me there. And he takes, and, and he, it's almost as if his attitude towards this is, well, I'm glad you finally got that off your chest. You've been holding that in for a long time. That's the attitude that, that comes of, I not only get to bring my praise and my supplication and my thanksgiving, I can bring my anger. I can bring my struggle. I can bring my wrestling. And that is where prayer, that's where God deals with that. That's where he deals with my heart because he wants me to walk in the light. He doesn't want me walking in the shadows, just stuffing all the things that I don't want him to know as I'm trying to portray myself to him as this holy person. He's like, no, let's, let's call a thing what it is. Let's put it all on the table. Let's, let's sort out the truth from the lies. That, that's what prayer is for me where I get to be honest with the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Adam and Eve and Ruth and Esther and Miriam. He is the God who hears us. I bear all my sin, both intentional and unintentional. In prayer, the Holy Spirit loosens and convicts the sin I cling to as I pray. And prayer becomes a big confession. Is that how it's supposed to work with everyone? I honestly don't know. But I know that he has been good to me in that way. And he has stubbornly loved me through hard times. Many approach the subject of prayer from a logic and reason perspective. Like C.S. Lewis asked the question, you know, does it work? Like how does it work exactly? And I would probably ask back, what is your definition of work or effective? If we define prayer works to mean that God gives us whatever we want, like spoiled children, well, we're going to be really disappointed because that's not how prayer works. God is not Santa Claus. If we mean prayer works to mean that our intimacy with God will increase, I think we're getting closer. But how on earth does one describe talking with God. I asked this question to my aunt who has been a mentor to me throughout my life. I asked her this question. I'm like, how, how do you even start? And she 
She said, forget the logistics, you learn as you go. That's just how it works. As we embrace the mystery of all God has given us, as we wrestle with the physical and the metaphysical and trying to define what is happening in us spiritually, we aren't often given full explanations of how everything works. But we can know that we can trust him. There was um, a couple years ago, my dad was in the hospital. Um, my dad and I have been estranged since I was a little girl. He's a very, um, he's an alcoholic and all that goes along with that. And it was his choice to step back from my family. He's never met my kids. I think he was afraid he would, he would ruin them or he would mess them up or he would disappoint them. And so he pulled back a lot and he was suffering from liver, liver failure and very near death in the hospital. And I remember praying, God, how am I gonna know, um, how am I gonna know what to tell him as he's laying here dying? How am I gonna know whether or not he still is hanging on to his faith that like, how do I know he's gonna be with you? How do I know? There was a lot. And when you go through a relationship as a child where your parents, he would always lie to me to make me feel better. He knew I was very religious, so he would just say things so I would get off his back. So I knew any deathbed confession would just go over my head because I had heard it all before. And I remember praying and saying, God, would you just give me a peace somehow? And I don't even know how that peace is gonna come because it's not gonna come from my dad. And it's not gonna come from any words that he says because he said all the words, but he just said them to make me leave him alone. And I recognized in prayer on the plane there that I don't know where my dad is with the Lord, but God knows. And that's enough. And that is good. Because God always does what is right and good and loving. And so I don't have to know. I think that's something that I've learned in prayer is just how great God is, how great his wisdom is. We approach God imperfectly. We approach him as sinners wearing the covering of Christ. There cannot be any pretense about it. Pretense or pretending is the opposite of intimacy. We are who we are and God is who he is and he's not asking us to pretend otherwise. Use a written prayer if it helps. Write out your prayers if it helps. Use the prayers of poets if they resonate with you. It's the most wonderful to use the Bible in prayer, even praying some of the verses that you need help understanding. I find that reading through the Psalms, which is God's prayer book to us, there's some uncomfortable prayers in there where I'm like, God, I don't know if I really should be praying this. This sounds kind of harsh. Like you've abandoned me and this is horrible and everything is falling apart. Um, that, that's a prayer book he gave us if you get to pray these words. That's astounding to me, the level of intimacy that he is pursuing. This topic has mystified academics. It doesn't fit into tidy logic. It's not formulaic. 
Is it emotional or is it instinctive? It's both. That's the crazy part. God wants all of us. Consider John 3, 8 says the Holy Spirit is a wind. We can't see the wind, but we basically we feel the effects of the wind. With this in mind, continue to look to the Psalms, the rustling leaves of the wind there as the psalmist emotions sway as they're trying to make sense of the world. God inspires our prayers and he fixes our prayers, he interprets our prayers as they go up to the Father, interprets our groans. God's promise for us isn't theoretical, it's not academic, it is real, it is tangible. We pour out our hearts, and as he hears us, he helps us in ways that we may not even see that we need. Does God encourage short prayers or long prayers? What time of day is most optional? What method is best to use? It's not a question of how as much as a question of in Christ. Because of his death and his resurrection, we get to come to the mercy seat and pray as often as we want to, as often as we need to. And he is there for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, I pray you would pour grace over all of our struggles and all of our wrestling. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each woman in here to be honest with you in her prayers. To say what she knows to be true so that you can help her sort out the truth from the lies. I pray that you would be gentle with us in our prayers, that you would be kind with us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to pray about all things big and small, that you would encourage us to to know that you want that level of intimacy to tell you things that are funny or things that are helping us drown i i pray that you would be with us this afternoon in our conversations that we would uh pray for each other and be with one another in prayer in your name amen